we went across the street and met with the MFM. He did a scan after he finished up. He was like, so what it looks like based on the things that we are seeing is it's either trisomy 13 and I lost it because I knew that's not a condition that babies usually can survive. And if they do, they have very life-limiting problems. And then the other thing was haloprosencephaly. Our TFMR stories, pregnancy loss support in the heartbreak of terminating a wanted pregnancy. In this episode, we talk to TFMR mom, Kate, about how she had to terminate her second pregnancy for brain anomalies called holomprosencephaly. Probably not pronouncing that correctly. The spelling will be here in the description She also mentions EWP, which is Ending a Wanted Pregnancy, a great resource for anyone going through the heartbreak of needing to terminate a wanted pregnancy. I also want to let you know that I have a Facebook group as well if you would like extra support through the process and the grief of TFMR, and you can apply to the TFMR support circle I'll have some links here in the show notes or here in the description on YouTube. There's also mention of her sub-pregnancy, a subsequent pregnancy after loss, which had more trauma of a NICU stay. So listen in to Kate's story now. All right, Kate. How about if you just tell us your name, where you're from, how you found out about the pregnancy, and favorite memory from your pregnancy? Okay. I'm Kate. I am from Rochester, New Hampshire. I live here with my husband and our two daughters. So our first daughter, Ellie, she was born in August of 2017, and I was breastfeeding her and also on, you know, the mini pill, the one that they recommend for pregnancy. And Alex and I were, so Mother's Day 2018, I got my first postpartum period. It lasted forever, like 17 days or something ridiculous like that. And then it came back for another couple of days. And I think Alex and I were like, oh, eventually we'll start trying for a second. But it wasn't like, seriously planned out. And I think it was like, I took my last pill, like somewhere mid June, June 9th, 10th, somewhere around there. I must've got pregnant right then based on dates and everything for the second pregnancy. And we actually went down to the Turks and Caicos for one of his army friends wedding. And it was like the first time we were ever away from Ellie and on an all-inclusive resort, whatever. I think I had bought like the cheap pregnancy tests on Amazon or something like that. And I had them with me for not because I thought that I was pregnant, but like, I was like, Oh, just if it gets close enough. Cause it was like, however it was timed out, like towards the end of vacation would have been when I would have tested positive. And I didn't, I think I tested maybe the last couple of days of our vacation, then got home. And the next morning, July 1st, I took a pregnancy test and I was positive. And I was like, not feeling great about being in um, the Turks and Caicos and just drinking for like a week straight. And also we had a 10 and a half month old at the time. I was like, wow, that's really close together. And I actually told them, well, we told my parents kind of like that next weekend. I was like, you know, hey, I'm pregnant. And 
everybody was excited and also like, that's going to be a lot. And I was really sick. Not so much morning sickness. I just felt awful those first few weeks. And because there was that like whole long first period and then some like additional bleeding, I didn't really know, like, I had no idea like what the dates should have been. So I went in for a dating scan and whatever date they said that I was like six, seven weeks or something like that. And I was still just apprehensive about it. It just, I don't know, like I wasn't getting excited about it the same way that I had when I found out that I was pregnant with Ellie. It was like, it just seemed too soon. And also I know a lot of women are in EWP talk a lot about how like they had this feeling of impending doom or like they felt like something was wrong. I don't know that it was necessarily that, but like I just couldn't get excited about it. And then the morning of our 12-week ultrasound, which was August 31st of 2018, one of my friends was pregnant. I think she sent me like pregnancy app that showed the picture of what size her baby was whenever she told me. And so I, like an hour before we went to the appointment, I sent her a picture being like, hey, guess what? Like it was, you know, 12 weeks, a little lemon. That was the first thing that like I sort of got excited about because it was like, you know, 12 weeks, woo, like where everything's fine. So I don't, I don't know that I have like a really great memory from the pregnancy. Like I wasn't feeling well and I was just feeling worried about it or something. So I guess maybe telling my parents was probably the most exciting because they were excited for us and we had the 12 week ultrasound and <laughs> it was no longer exciting. So is, is that when you, um, when you got the, the beginning of the poor prenatal diagnosis? Was that the 12 week? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I know I've talked about this before, but like really the only reason I did the NG scan is because when we, I don't remember why we chose the subsequential screen with Ellie. Maybe it was just because there was like an ultrasound offered at the 12 week with that one. Like there was blood work and then blood work, like it's 16 weeks, I think for neural tube defects. But because we had had that with her, I was like, all right, maybe I'll start getting more excited if we see the baby. So I've talked about this before, how like, if it wasn't for that ultrasound, we wouldn't have known anything until the anatomy scan at like 20 weeks. Because after, you know, the testing that was done after my DNC, it was nothing genetic. It was just a fluke. So it wouldn't have popped up on any prenatal testing that they give you. So so you didn't do the the NIPT test for this pregnancy? No. It was all, you could just see it on the ultrasound or they yeah. found it. Yeah. So the, there's so much of that day that I don't remember at all or like I choose not to remember anymore. Something to work on in therapy maybe. We went in for the 12-week ultrasound and the ultrasound tech like, you know, started taking some measurements and stuff and then... I don't know, she probably got really quiet and she's like, I just, I need to um, go check with the doctor on something. And I was like, that's not good. And it felt like forever for her to come back. And I was like, like, obviously in tears, Alex was there. She was like, yeah, the doctor just has to review the scans. There's, there might be something wrong with your baby's brain. Then it was like forever for the doctor to like have an open room 
And then it was forever for her to come in. And she came in the door and was like, okay, so this is, it could be nothing. It could be something we don't know, but there's definitely, it looks like there's some abnormalities. And part of the reason why it was taking so long is because she was calling over to the maternal fetal medicine center for genetics, like right across the street, asking if they had any appointments or when the next appointment was available. And thankfully they had one the next hour. So she was like, I'm going to send you over there and then we'll go from there. And we had to wait for like a disc of pictures that they wanted to send over with us. And, you know, I'm a complete wreck. And for whatever reason, I like asked to go out the back door just because in my head, I didn't want other women out in the waiting room to see a hot mess of a woman and then have it like ruin their day too, which I know it's a weird thing to think about other people when you're in the middle of a crisis. And I really shouldn't have cared about anybody else at that point. It was partly just because I didn't want to see any other person leaving there. So we went across the street and met with the MFM and he did a scan. I did not look at the ultrasound the entire time. And it was transvaginal because I was still only 12 weeks. And I could just hear him saying like things about, you know, the brain and like that their the hands were clenched a little bit, not like really bad. And that there was some heart issues. But the main thing was that there was major issues with the brain. After he finished up, he was like, so what it looks like based on the things that we are seeing is it's either trisomy 13. And I lost it because I knew that's not a condition that babies usually can survive. And if they do, they have very life-limiting problems. And then the other thing was haloprosencephaly, which is because all the testing that they did after the DNC came back with no genetic abnormalities and it wasn't trisomy 13, like that's the diagnosis that they said it was. Not that it's, it like had a lot of markers that are related to that, but it wasn't necessarily like checking all the boxes. So that's a diagnosis they used because you have to have one for insurance purposes and everything, but it didn't fit it precisely. So either way, after I got dressed and we went out into one of the rooms, he told us, you know, in either scenario, there is profound intellectual disabilities. The things that we're seeing, there'd be the baby wouldn't have any ability to swallow on their own and lots of seizures and never be able to walk or talk or do anything that makes a life worth living in our opinion. And he said, you know, you have three options. You can do CBS, you can just continue the pregnancy to term, which was no guarantee as with the vast majority of pregnancies that have fetal anomalies, they can't guarantee you're going to make it to term either, or you can terminate. And if that's your option, we'll have to like call your OB and schedule that and everything. And he gave us some time to think about it. And neither one of us needed much time to decide. Like if you hear all those things about how little one of your children is, they're not going to be able to experience life. It wasn't something that we needed more confirmation on. Like Alex, he saw the ultrasound he saw what the brain looked like. We knew what the doctor had said. And I don't think further testing or anything would have made it any better. It would have just prolonged it. So 
we obviously decided to terminate. That's why I'm here. And he came, the doctor came back in and asked us what we had decided. He said he would call my OB and she would be in touch later that day. So it was Labor Day weekend, um, Friday before Labor Day weekend. So we knew at the very least we'd be waiting a couple days. And thankfully, my OB called later that afternoon. And she said that she had talked to the doctor and that, you know, she agreed that this was the kindest choice and that she had moved her schedule around so that she could do it that Tuesday afternoon. We didn't have to wait a ton of time, but it was still probably one of the longest weekends ever, just waiting for it to happen. So you were able to stay with your same OB? Yeah. So the OB is like literally right across the street from the hospital, which is actually where I had my DNC. I was very fortunate that I got to have it in a hospital and be completely sedated and not remember it and not have protesters or have to go out of state or anything like that. It still sucked. Yeah, it doesn't make it easier, but it doesn't add like five other layers of trauma on top of it. Exactly. Yeah. How was that weekend for you? Like the anticipatory grief? Well, my sister came up that weekend. I think I questioned it, whether it was the right decision quite a bit. And I don't know that, like, I didn't spend a ton of time researching it or like, I know that part of the reason you're doing this channel is that so that people can have other stories to do. And I don't think I even thought to do that. Like I, it may have just been like, I was in complete shock and just was like trying to get through the day with one year old at that time. Just, I don't know. It was not a great weekend. And I had told enough friends that I was pregnant and then also told them, you know, like what's going on. And everybody has been super supportive of that. But it doesn't, like you're waiting for like promiest day of your life. So yeah, it was not, I wouldn't say that Labor Day is my favorite holiday anymore. Yeah. And we're actually filming right before Labor Day weekend right now. So, and yesterday was actually the two year anniversary. That day. The date. Yeah. So I had also gone back and forth a couple of times about whether <laughs> this is a good day to do this, but I was like, ah, we're going to power through. We'll see how it goes. Yeah. One of my best friends, you know, she had asked me what she could do if she wanted. Obviously, Alex was with me at the hospital. It was same day surgery. And she asked if I wanted somebody else there. And I originally didn't. And then I was like, actually, you know what? Like, can you just come and be there? And she was until I went into surgery. I'm so sorry. It just, the whole situation, I don't even remember all the, it was probably the best case scenario that could have happened, like finding out early and having my home hospital and home doctor be the one that did it. And there were still things that were just like, like the anesthesiologist came into the room and assumed it was a miscarriage. And I don't even remember what he said, but everybody else in the room knew that it was not just. I had had a miscarriage and one of the nurses was like, you're doing what's right for your family. And he still like could not look at his own notes to like see what was happening or understand what was happening or read the room. And it was just like, okay, thanks guy. You're not really helping this. And I don't think anybody walks out of that situation thinking it was good for what they wanted. It happened. And then I got to go home like within a few hours. I do not do well with narcotics and was not feeling well afterwards, but 
other than that, I think the recovery was pretty easy. I was like, had people around for the first couple of days. And other than that, I don't remember anything like significant happening or it being painful or anything like that. So that was at least another good thing about it, that there was no complications afterwards or we all know too much now. I feel like, like all the stories on EWP is just, it's hard not to see all the other ways that it could have gone wrong. You know, my pregnancy with EB, how that could have gone wrong too. Yeah. And we can get to your pregnancy after loss here too, because I mean, it's all, it's all intertwined. Yeah. But going back to that day, were you given any grief support at the hospital or was it just treated as a procedure? was mostly treated as a procedure. Like, I don't remember anything. I think I sought out stuff myself. Like I had, I think my first post on ending a live pregnancy Facebook group was as I was driving, well, Alex was driving me to the hospital, just to like real quick intro, like, hey, I'm on the way to the hospital. Um, this is, this sucks. But then I had also found a local one, which did not work out. <laughs> it was very much focused on miscarriage and stillbirth and infant loss and some woman like you know I scrolled through it trying to figure out am I the only one in this group that is terminating a pregnancy and I didn't see anybody else but I explained the diagnosis and that we were it was back before I was like comfortable with saying termination or abortion or anything like that it was like so fresh that I don't know you know like the use all the hidden words that imply termination, which, or just that we were making a choice. And there were like a couple supportive comments. And then I woke up in the middle of the night because Ellie had been crying and saw that there was a comment from some woman basically saying that I was making a mistake. I would regret it. Um, She knew women who had abortions and regret it, that I should get second opinions and just like the worst thing to wake up and see. And you know, the admin of the group was like, I've never had that happen. Like I talked to her and if she's going to continue to say that stuff, she has to leave. But I was like, no, like this isn't, this isn't a supportive group. And it's not already stated in the rules that that's not allowed. Like there's other places that I can find support. Before leaving though, I did ask the admin if she had any good suggestions for therapists in the area that deal with pregnancy loss. And I did find my therapist through her. So I guess it wasn't a total waste of my time because I was able to find a therapist that is awesome. And I still see to this day, well, see, talk to you on the phone right now. Yeah. There wasn't anything offered for bereavement or grief from my doctor. If I had more time or motivation, I might ask them, like, if that's changed since then, they offer support or, I don't know, because other women are going through this and it's, Right, it's not fun to find out find all that information on your own. Mm-hmm. Which is why, unfortunately or fortunately, I don't know which word to use. We have to make our own spaces that are yeah. safe mm-hmm. for terminations for medical reasons. Yeah, I mean that's the only reason that we exist apart from broad spectrum loss groups, right? Because of comments like that. Yeah. When you had said, this is our decision, this is what we're doing. I mean, what if you had said, we're caring to term and this was our diagnosis. And if someone went on there and said, that's the wrong decision, you need to abort. That's something that 
I think a lot about, especially because the person that made that comment did carry to term for a 100% fatal diagnosis, like no chance. And I think now I understand more about being pro-choices, being whatever choice anybody wants to make. It's not just like that you approve of abortion. It's that somebody wants to carry a pregnancy to term, they should be allowed to do that too. But at the time, part of it was just like pure rage at the fact that someone had the audacity to say something like that to me, but also because if I had been given that diagnosis, I also would have terminated for that too, because it makes no sense to me to put my health at risk and to what end. So yeah, if it had been the other way, like everybody would have been very supportive. And I had seen that in that group because there were several people that that's what they chose to do. Which is unfortunate because then it's not real support. No. They're only supporting you if you make the the decision that they They think you should. Right. But it's so personal. It is. Well, then the process of grieving, you... So then you had to find the support groups that worked for you and your therapist. And yeah. how was that emotionally, spiritually, um, psychologically? So as far as the therapist, when I called and talked to the receptionist, it was, I think it was less than a week after I terminated. And I called and said, basically, hi, this is my story. She's not supportive of that. I need to find another therapist. And she's like, no, no, like she's very supportive of that. And I'll find out when her next available appointment was and is and talk to her about it. She is very supportive. And I got in within a week or two, I think. So it was really nice to like the support group is awesome because you know you can say just about anything there and somebody else probably has gone through it or felt it or can empathize and then having a live person that wasn't like my circle being able to talk to them about all of it as well was really really helpful and especially when I was pregnant with EB because it was really hard yeah when did you decide to try to conceive again or when did you get pregnant after the loss I had my termination on September 4th And I think I got my first period back um, three or four weeks later, um, probably three. And then like I talked to my therapist about it. And I think this is very common in our type of loss or probably any type of pregnancy loss, like that, like almost animalistic drive to be pregnant again. Mm -hmm. Um, And you just want to like fill that hole of what's missing. And we weren't told to wait at all. And she said you could get pregnant whenever and we just didn't use any birth control and I I'm leading up until when I thought my period was going to happen like I didn't know how I was going to feel whether I would feel relief or just like crushing sadness over if it was positive or negative I wasn't sure like what emotion I was going to have and it was negative and then I talked to my therapist I was devastated she asked what it would feel like I just like sat on it for a while and not tried to get pregnant and I was like I don't think I can do that and I got pregnant the next cycle which I personally do not recommend eight weeks or a month and a half so it was like yeah a month and a half after 
terminating that I was pregnant again. And that's not enough time to work on your grief. And I don't know that there would have been any amount of time that would have made it better. But like, especially with my sub-pregnancy, like I feel like I always wonder if the complications that happened would have happened if I had waited. Who knows? Maybe I wouldn't have spent five weeks in the hospital after my water broke early. If I, because that can happen, like if births are too close together, like, like there's no, there's no definitive reason why it happened, but it makes me like, just wonder if all that, not just that, but also some of the mental health aspects of it might've been different. And I can talk about that. Like I'm not, I don't mind talking about that stuff too, but. Uh, so are you talking about the, um, the mental health how, how your mental health was during your, while, while you were still pregnant or before the water broke or? Um, all, but all, all. So, <laughs> I was eight weeks pregnant and had just recently stopped nursing Ellie. So she was about 16 months old. So eight weeks pregnant, just stopped nursing, still grieving a lot, obviously. And had gone down to my sister's place to help her because she had to put her cat down. And um, it was just not a good combination. I think any of the two of the four or one could have probably made this happen, but I um, started having a lot of intrusive thoughts about hurting myself and hurting Ellie. Um, And, you know, like early pregnancy hormones are (laughs) awful giving up breastfeeding changes your hormones in an entirely mm-hmm. different way. Um, yeah. And just, you know, watching a cat be put down. Yeah. And just, you know, like even just the symbolism of that, like, right. He was really sick and needed to be put down, but it was just like bringing back all of the stuff regarding the termination. And yeah, doesn't make it easier just because you're making a compassionate choice. Right. I was actually on Wellbutrin anyway. I had been on it for years before I got pregnant with Ellie and then went off of it before I had her. And then I was on Zoloft for uh, postpartum anxiety and depression after I had Ellie. I was on that for like six months. And then the day of my DNC, I asked my OB, like, can I just go back on this? Like, I don't want my hormones to go crazy and have postpartum anxiety or depression again, along with grief. So I was on that already. And then when I had these intrusive thoughts, I saw one of the nurse practitioners at my OB's office and she bumped up the Wellbutrin and then also added in hydroxyzine, which is like an antihistamine, anti-anxiety med that there's some studies that have shown that it could have some birth defects, but it was like the therapeutic dose they're giving to mice is like, 300 times the amount that you would give to a human. So she was like, I think the benefits far outweigh the risk. Um, It was just something that I could take when the anxiety got really, really bad, which is all the time. Yeah. So that wasn't a great start to Evie's pregnancy. My mom found out I was pregnant because I had come home from my sisters and my best friend was there. My best friend and my sister were talking about my pregnancy hormones and my mom overheard it and was like, 
oh, like came in super excited. Like I heard you're pregnant again. I was like, I'm not happy about this. Like right now is not the time. You know, like this is terrifying. So along with the medication, my nurse practitioner thought that I should see a psychiatrist. And thankfully my therapist was like, I don't think you need that. I think you're just grieving and your anxiety manifests itself in these intrusive thoughts and you're horrified by them and you're not acting on them. And that's what, you know, that's what makes it different. And if you are actually acting on them, that is something that we need to be concerned about. And it was still not fun, like telling people, like, it's still not fun saying like, oh yeah, I had these ideas of hurting my kid, which I would never do. But brains are weird and I was struggling. Anyway, I didn't end up seeing a psychiatrist because it was like four to six month wait because there's no mental health services available anywhere because so many people need it, which is just depressing to know that people that, you know, like I made it out okay and didn't need that resource, but there's lots of people that do. And because it wasn't available four to six months, the nurse practitioner and several other people like the midwives had said, like, if this gets bad, you need to go to the ER and be evaluated for behavioral by behavioral health, which is also not something you want to hear. But yeah, the beginning was really hard. The first, I had a bunch of ultrasounds even before 12 weeks because of bleeding. And I had an infection and all of that was just like awful and hard. And I didn't know that it was going to get harder. <laughs> but yeah, the 12 week ultrasound was fine. You know, I convinced them to do that just because of my history, not because I was doing that same set of tests that I had done with Ellie. And I hit 20 weeks, the due date of our second baby, which is a tough milestone to have overlapping. And, you know, my therapist talked about it a lot, but it's like, you're going through these milestones of this new pregnancy while also still kind of being in the what should be. So it's almost like here, you have two parallel paths that are kind of butting up against each other on different milestones and important dates. And I had lost a bunch of weight. I wasn't gaining weight at the 20 week ultrasound. I was like, Hey, is there a chance that I could have another ultrasound? And they were like, unless there's any problems, like there's no reason to have another ultrasound. And then I went in at 24 weeks and I was still hadn't gained any weight. And my OB, the one that had form the DNC was like, okay, let's schedule a growth scan for 28 weeks. And the Thursday before Mother's Day, I went in and there's a lot of people in EWP that have had weight diagnoses. And part of it was just for my own reassurance, like wanting to make sure that the brain was still forming properly and that everything was okay. And in my head, I was like, all right, this is just just a reassurance thing. It's gonna be fine. Everything's been fine so far. And then we went into the exam room and the doctor came in and she was like, so the baby's measuring small, like the percentile, and we're going to have to schedule with the MFM again to have a more in-depth ultrasound. I was like, okay. And they said they only do ultrasounds on Fridays or Tuesdays. So I tried to be chill and wait for the referral and for the center for medical genetics call me. And then like later on the day, I was like, no, nah, I can't. So I called them and they didn't have anything available until Tuesday. And I actually called my OB 
a little while later and I was like, so I can't get an appointment until Tuesday. Is there anything that I need to be concerned about? Like besides, you know, like movement or like if my water breaks or I go into labor this weekend, I said those words and the nurse was like, it's not going to happen. You'll be fine. And my water broke on Mother's Day that weekend at 28 weeks and two days, which is not how you want a pregnancy after loss to go. (laughs) And we went to the hospital they checked and it came back that, you know, like my water had broke. They had to transfer me to a different hospital because our local hospital doesn't handle babies less than 35 weeks, I think. So it was um, two hours away from our house. And when I left our local hospital, they were, their best prognosis was I would deliver within a week or two. And I got to uh, Dartmouth and they said, you know, as long as there's no issues with an infection or distress of the baby, we are going to try to get you to 34 weeks. So yeah, I was on hospital bed rest for five weeks before I had Evie, which like I said, is not ideal for any scenario, certainly not after loss. Yeah. So was that 33 weeks and a few days when she was born? I was supposed to be induced on June 20th. At exactly 34 weeks. And then I started having some bleeding on Father's Day. And they. Again, with started. another parent's day. Gosh. Yeah. yeah. It's really big. <sighs> um, she has her own timetable. And <laughs> um, they were worried about a placental abruption. Um, so they induced me on Father's Day. And she was born like an hour and. 18 minutes after Father's Day ended. So, yeah. And she was tiny. Like the original ultrasound that we had that showed that she was small was not, she wasn't as small according to Dartmouth's ultrasounds, but she was still very tiny. Uh, She was very small for gestational age when she was born. And that's just due to having like um, a couple issues with the placenta and where it was attached and all these small chance things that just piled on and happened. Premature rupture of membranes can be a risk factor for having a placental abruption. So she had a marginal cord insertion and velamentous cord insertion. And I don't remember the details of it, but one of it, it's off to the side where her umbilical cord is. And the other other one is like, it goes through the placenta or something like that. One of which we didn't know until after she was born and they did pathology on it. But like, they're both very risky for stillbirth and neonatal death. And that just like makes me kind of, want to gag thinking about how lucky we are that she's here um how long was she in the in the NICU then so she was at Dartmouth for eight days which was certainly the harder of the NICU stay that we had um because that's like super high-risk pregnancies and babies and the entire time that I was in the hospital I would meet with a neonatologist and they would say you know like we didn't know what we were having until we got to Dartmouth and then I was like I need to know who this baby is that we found us up for. And we found out it was another girl. But they were like, girls do better if they're born premature. And she was at whatever weight, not that they don't care about, because they still care, but like, they're like, we see one pound babies all the time. And she was like, already at, estimated at two and a half before she was born. So they're like, she'll do well in the NICU. So yeah, they have a lot of 
very, very preterm babies, micropremies, and babies with health issues, some of which um, I'm part of like the NICU parent support group on Facebook. And there's lots of stories of people that carried to term and had very, very sick babies that some of which are still living. And I use that term loosely and some have passed away. And it's being in a NICU is awful. No matter how long you're in there for, it's not what anybody dreams that they're pregnancy and birth and postpartum is going to be like. I had actually shared this recently. So she was there for eight days and then we got to transfer to our local hospital for another two weeks. I think she was there for 23 days before she came home in a hospital setting. But the local hospital was just like, she had her own room on in the birth center or labor and delivery ward. And I just got to stay with her. Um, she was hooked up to all the machines and stuff. But I shared something, and I know you, you had mentioned this because it's NICU Awareness Month. I had shared something about how hard it was to see her the first time. And my mom saw it on Instagram. And she was like, you know, I didn't see her for three hours after because I had to go back to my room that I had been in for five hours for recovery. And I had um, postpartum hemorrhaging and stuff. And so that had to be taken care of before I could go see her. So it was about three hours before I saw her for like two seconds. Like they brought her out after they had checked her out and everything. And the, I had to deliver an OR. So they brought her back in from the like side room where they have all the equipment and everything. And let me see her for a second. And then I didn't see her for three hours. And then I didn't get to hold her for seven. And my mom was like, I had no idea. Like, I thought you got to do skin to skin. And I was like, no, no, like. I didn't get any of that stuff. And I knew that going into it, like I talked with the nurses about it, about what I could and couldn't do. And still like, there's so many things that you miss out on. And it was so hard being there, not because of Evie, because she was relatively healthy. Like she didn't have alarms going off all the time. She wasn't a one pound baby. She just had to learn to get old enough so that she could learn how to feed and grow. But still just being in that setting where it's like constantly an emergency for somebody is there's some trauma. And a lot of people that have experienced their kids being in the NICU have that. Yeah. Don't, don't a majority of NICU parents have PTSD. Yeah. So she's a, she's a year, she's a year old now. Yeah. She's, um, she's something. (laughs) What is that? What is that adjusted? She's like 13 months adjusted right now. So she's going to be 15 months old, actual age. In So she was born 15 months ago. But if she had been born on her due date, she would be like 13 months old this week. So is that about what stage she's at? Like a 13-month-old? Or is she doing just what she's doing? Yeah, no, she's like, I think I haven't looked at like what milestones she should be hitting. But like we did uh, early intervention services for her because she was born and had in when she when I was pregnant with her, she had inner uterine growth restriction, which means she was like super tiny for her gestational age because of my crummy placenta. So the good thing is she had asymmetrical IUGR, which means it's brain sparing. So they have come out with like enormous heads, like most preemies do, but her brain and all that kept growing more than the rest of her body. So she was tiny, but that caused some issues with her being able to do tummy time and sitting up just because she had a huge head, which has started to like balance out. But she did that for a couple of months 
and graduated from it. And I think she's like right on track now. She wants, if she was left to her own devices, she'd be crawling the walls and you have to watch her constantly or else she'll do something to hurt herself. But yeah, she's <laughs> yeah. doing great. Yeah. It's amazing and catch up with in a year or so. Yeah. So it's like, there's, there's compounded grief for you. So there's the grief of the termination. And then on top of that, the grief of everything that you had to mourn from this pregnancy with her, how has that process been for you? And how do you continue to work with all of that? So there's, yes, there's the termination grief. And I think so long for a long time, Alex and I have always said that we were going to just have two kids. And then at some point we were like, oh, we'll leave it open to three. And I think if Evie's pregnancy had been, hadn't have been so high risk, we probably would have potentially had a third kid um, living child. But like the first night that I was at Dartmouth, they were like, okay, so if you're ever going to have pregnancies again after this, you were going to have to talk about like a plan for that because I would have been at an enormous risk for going into preterm labor again. And on top of that, like this is like Ellie was really small when she was born. And it was probably not a good placenta either. So I think like, I just don't make the best ones. So who knows? Like there was too much of a risk to have another kid. My parents had to watch Ellie for basically two months while I was in the hospital and Alex was going back and forth. And I wouldn't want that to happen again to my kids, to my family. So it's the loss of the option of having another third biological child. And also just knowing that there's someone that should be here that isn't. And there's a reason why our second baby isn't here. And I don't regret our choice, but there's always like, like yesterday when Alex and I had our day of fun, he was like, yeah, our second baby should be like a year and a half old. We were like sitting next to someone that had a young kid. And it's like, like Evie wouldn't be here if we had had that second pregnancy period term or even if we had have had a healthy pregnancy like she wouldn't have she wouldn't exist but like it's still just knowing that there's someone that's not here so there's that there's not having like my last pregnancy be one that went to turn and wasn't full of complications and uh, I talk to my therapist a lot I don't know you know like I talk to her about how do you come to terms with the end of your childbearing years or having biological kids like how do you make peace with that she kind of said you know I, it's just time like eventually it's not going to hurt as much it's not going to be something that you long for quite as much as you do now that's not really like not much I can do about it except for wait it out yeah the grief well it's the grief process because yeah you know right now when it's still really strong, it's like, well, I would like to have another baby, but no. Okay, well, we're grieving that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I think part of what has helped with my grief is sharing my story, just, you know, like with people I know and on social media. And actually this past year, someone that I know reached out to me. She's now a member in the group and she's not public about it. So I'm not going to give any more details about how I know her, but she reached out to me and was like, Hey Kate, I just wanted to let you know that your story has been on my mind recently because she was had gone to her anatomy scan and found out that her baby was really, really sick and 
she was like, I don't know that I would have had the strength to do that if I didn't know that there was other people who had gone through it. And thank you for sharing your story. And I've had other people like just share that they've had people that you would never expect. Of course, you never expect because no one ever talks about it. And or a lot of people don't talk about it, but people sharing their stories of loss, not necessarily terminating, but like a few people had. And I think not only knowing that there's other people that share that grief, but also just helping be a support for other people and that they feel comfortable telling me that information. Just last night, one of my really good friends, one of his friends had gone onto my Facebook profile. And my most recent thing about, you know, abortion being healthcare was public. So she saw it and she messaged my friend and was like, hey, like I saw Kate's profile and I actually have been through a termination similar to her story. And like my friend would have never known that information if I hadn't been public about it. I think not only just about the termination, but about the mental health pieces, like I've shared about postpartum anxiety and about my intrusive thoughts and all that stuff. And I think it just, that has helped me heal both in finding the community and being a support for people that need it. Thank you so much, Kate. (laughs) I know I'm sure all of those people are so grateful to you too, because it is such a lonely feeling. And I felt the same way. I'm like, I'm the only person who's ever had to do this with a planned and wanted pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, even though I knew. Yeah. Like, no, I mean, yeah, there's others, but like, I don't know anybody. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, know anybody. But then later, after I shared my story with some people, then there were people who came to me and it's like, oh, okay, we just don't talk about it. Yeah. Which is so crummy. You know, I think about my friend and if she didn't know my story, like I connected her with someone else in ending a line of pregnancy who also went to um, main med. And so she was able to tell her about the process and also just like thinking about other people in my area going to that infant loss support, pregnancy support group and being shunned for their decision, like. I don't want anybody else to not have other options for support and grief. Well, what's something that you would say to someone who's recently gone through a termination for medical reasons? I think finding a community like ours is so important. I am a huge proponent of therapy and, you know, finding a community, finding a therapist, I'm a huge supporter of therapy and yeah, just giving it time isn't something you can heal overnight. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thanks for that. I will put um, the link for the application for ending a a wanted pregnancy, um, which this channel is separate, but yeah, we're both in that group as well. And if you've gone through a termination or if it's planned, you can apply there. Community, yeah, it's so important. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I'm so glad that you're doing this because even though I would have never thought to look for this, I think it's going to be really helpful for a lot of women and families and people that need it. Thank you so much, Kate. Thank you, Sabrina. Thank you so much for joining us in our episode today of our TFMR stories. 
I hope you find the resources and stories useful for your grief process today as well. And I also want to let you know that I am enrolling for a very special program that I call Ascend, our TFMR grief circle. So it's only for people like you, only for people who have been through the heartbreak of terminating a wanted pregnancy for health reasons. We will be starting February, February 9th, February 10th, depending on which group you would like to join. So if you would like to come have an even more supportive and intimate experience with five or six other people who have also been through what you have been through, you can apply here in the link below or either in the show notes. Take a look and see if this could be the program for you. I am Sabrina Fletcher, Pregnancy Loss Doula, and you can find me on all the platforms, Facebook and Instagram at the TFMR Doula if you would like extra support. And make sure to subscribe wherever you are listening or watching this episode. Sending you so, so much love. 